So uh, I have two things to share that I think is really important. One is I, I realized this yesterday. Mm-hmm. Never, unless it's like absolutely urgent and necessary, break your prayer routine. Yeah. So I slept horribly on Sunday night into Monday morning, which is my day of rest. And I was really looking for, I was finally home on my day of rest. Like I just, you know, I was just doing other things, going to visit friends and stuff like that. But um, doing it, I was like, oh, I finally get to just stay home and do nothing. Mm-hmm. Which was good in many ways because it really teaches me this lesson that I actually, as much as I like to speak about leisure, I'm actually really horrible at it. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know how to leisure. I'm not good at it. Um, but I slept, I woke up at like, cause I've been trying to use my CPAP again. Um, and I think it woke me up in the middle of the night essentially. But the problem is you're getting like flooded with oxygen. So when you wake up, you're awake, like right oh, away, yeah. you're just <laughs> ready to go. It's like mm-hmm. two 20 in the morning. You're like, no, this is too early. Now granted, I have been going to bed earlier. You know, I'm getting to bed 9 30, 10, 10 30 is my normal bedtime now, which is kind of insane. But, um, I yeah I so I woke up and I was just exhausted Uh, I was out of it and I just said okay Jesus I'm gonna go make breakfast first and that was the end of it (laughs) it was the breakfast of Satan dun 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 eggs of sin hash browns of darkness bacon of Malfeasance. Yeah. So. <laughs> so what happened? Oh, there. So well, no, it's just it was a good lesson though. Like, and it's it's always beautiful how Jesus. Well, there was two things with all this. So one was like, so I didn't really get the holy hour in yesterday, which really kind of saddened me. Mm-hmm. Um, prayed morning prayer far too late. I still prayed my breviary and stuff, but it was just the prayer life. The day got off kilter. Mm-hmm. I realized very quickly how important starting the day off that way, regardless of how I feel, is really important. Um, but then the second thing that kind of came with that, uh, it was that this morning, actually, I woke up. And I'm like, okay, I got to go do the, the holy hour. And kind of Jesus just put this little little nudge on the conscience that said, no, 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 no. I'm inviting you to come be with me. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm like, ah, uh, this is why I started seeing it a bit of a duty. Not that that's not part of it. Right. But it was starting to become something that wasn't an act of love. It was yeah. the thing I need to do to show Jesus I love him. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. oh, okay. So that's good. But it's just like, is this those little things where Jesus just like gently corrects you and everything? Isn't it? It's mm-hmm. just wonderful. Yes, absolutely. Have, how, how do you, do you have a routine? Do you, do you, no. well, do you get thrown off of it or what? Yeah. So I'm still working on my routine here at this new place. Right. Uh, a lot of times my holy hour will be in the evening afternoon. Uh, so I kind of like look at my schedule for the next day. I decide that's when I'll do my holy hour and that's, you know, uh, when I do it. But it's difficult with new place. Uh, prayer in times of transition is always particularly difficult. It really uh, is. Yeah. But uh, it's been good. Um, yeah. yeah. I'm I'm reading some Bonaventure. Bonaventure is my new favorite theologian. Heck yeah. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's one of these things where... Uh, I definitely would have been a communio guy back in the day just because there's a little bit of a rebellious streak in the sense that I grew up in seminary with a lot of Aquinas. And I absolutely right. think Aquinas is very good. 
I think if you do any kind of theology, you have to wrestle with Aquinas. Also, to be honest, Aquinas helps me understand Bonaventure because they still use mm-hmm. that. He still uses that scholastic uh, stuff. Mm-hmm. But I can never imagine um, going into a chapel and praying with the Summa. But I can totally do that with uh, Bonaventure's journey uh, into the mind of God. Mm-hmm. And so I just I've been loving it. I've been loving it nice. so much. Nice, yeah. nice. Yeah. That's cool. That's good. I uh, I still I remember it was a couple weeks ago on his feast day in the office of readings. That's what got me. That's yeah, what got and, me I, and I read it. Case. I read it. I was like, man, this is really good. I forgot about how good this is. And then I preached. I just kind of, sometimes for a weekday homily, I'm like, oh, this is really good in office readings. I'll just bring that to the pulpit. I'll read it to them. But then I started like commenting on it and I was like, oh, dang, this is really good. <laughs> right? Yeah. This is really good. So yeah, it's, it's just these little things. Like it's, a, it's important to just learn like Jesus just tenderly is always trying to call you and correct you. It's very rare that I think... He corrects harshly, not because he doesn't want to correct harshly when we need it, but rather uh, you have to be pretty obstinate and decisive in your rejection of him for him to be harsh. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and even, his harshness is, uh, yeah. even his harshness is out of love. Right. Because I'm well, Gabriel. Yeah, because, well, yeah, well, you're seeing this in John's gospel right now, right? He keeps on like trying, but as, as they're getting more obstinate in their rejection of him as the center, they are, Jesus is getting more direct in his language. If that yes, makes sense. Very so, much so. Yeah. So the second thing is, is something I discovered this week that has finally made thesis writing easy and possible for me. What is this? So I've discovered how horrible screens are if you have ADHD. Because oh, yeah. when I go to sit at like a Word document, I sit there and I feel dazed, confused, don't know where to start. As you start typing, you forget what you typed two lines beforehand. You forget what you wrote. Um, it's easy to go browse on the internet for a bit or whatever. And I'm like, this just isn't working. But one thing I do pretty much all the time when I'm preaching on Sundays, just to help keep me in line and not preach for 30 minutes instead of like what's been normally 22 minutes lately, um, is uh, I I write my homilies out by hand. Yeah. And that keeps me focused and it slows my thought patterns down to really focus on what's in front of me. Mm. So I just kind of came up with this idea to start doing it for my thesis. Handwriting your thesis. Yeah, I've written 12 pages so far of my thesis hand by hand. And That's so, uh, impressive. So what I, what I do, well, I'll, I'll show Father Anthony. This one won't be recorded on video, so... Uh, do you print or you do cursive? I, I, oh, I print. I, I'm a lefty. You don't want me to do cursive. Oh, that's fair. Um, so I put the notes, or I put my uh-huh. writing in the main. I make a very large right-hand margin where I can put notes, comments, citations, etc. So, like, yeah, like, so, for example, here, you'll see all these notes on the side that I put just to help me remind, oh, yeah, you need to address this later. So just go back. So then I have something to go back to as I'm writing later on. So just a little theory of the mind here for those listening to the podcast, since this is an audio uh, recording. Imagine the most scholarly thing you have ever seen in your entire life. Then imagine something even more scholarly than that. And then you will see Father Harrison's pages (laughs) that he has written down. It's a thing of beauty. I was enlightened just by you waving it in front of the screen. I felt a flash of enlightenment. Uh, I I now understand mediation... Uh, better than I ever thought was go. possible. So there you go. That's, yeah. that's what you missed. 
and I put so I put my footnotes in there. And I mean, it's helpful too. It's like, oh right, go find this footnote later or something like that when you get the book around you and everything. But I, I've written twelve pages, hand so twelve a page gets you one maybe sometimes a, you know on average one typed page, one written page equals one typed page of a mm-hmm. thesis. So because I was always struggling to get going on the thesis because I would just sit at the Word document just looking at it blankly. So then you, you write it out. I've already and I've already started typing out some of the pages. I put it so then the typing becomes the end result and mm-hmm. as i'm typing out, i'm like wait that sentence didn't make sense so then i go back to the paper i re- i scribble i go into the margins there and i rework out the idea i write it out and then i go back and i type it and so it's a great process by which the thoughts and the ideas are being judged it helps me to have a clarity of thought and uh, i was also um it was just it's just super exciting and it's like i thought this is a lot more labor intensive and in one sense it is but in the other sense, it's not because I would waste so much time just sp- staring at my Word document. Going, yeah. And the other problem with a Word document is it makes it easy to edit. Mm-hmm. You can go back and say, no, this isn't sufficient enough. This isn't enough. And that's always a problem with when you're doing academic stuff. Uh, it's never enough. It's never yes. enough. It's never subtle <laughs> enough. It's never precise <laughs> enough. There is no such thing as super precise. So by writing it by hand, you, you've committed to something now. And it's been really helpful. So I've just been tearing through. So I should have my, at least what I can do for my introductory chapter, I should have that done this week. Delightful. Congratulations, Father Harrison. Yeah. I'm also very, one more little thing on that. Sorry, this has been a while, but um, I was really, I got really excited today because I went, I went after the notion, like I took, you know how in academia, they always say you have to be like kind of almost like cold and distant to the object you're studying. Okay. This is quite common. Like you have to be objective and all this stuff, right? Sure. I used Augustine to tear that idea apart. Oh, interesting. <laughs> that, because for Augustine, reason is true philosophia. Love, it is love of the object. And mm-hmm. I said, so I used the analogy of imagine a married couple where the, where the spouses judge each other at the end of the day with observations, uh, taking notes, giving studies that change the notion of spouse, destroy the notion of spouse, et cetera, et cetera, to have a pure objective sense of the person, that would be a horrible marriage. Sure. You wouldn't know the person. Yeah. Right? Knowing actually requires, if you want to be distant and objective, you actually need to enter into the object first. Hmm. So that was a little Augustinian trick I, I pulled on my thesis that I actually had a lot of fun doing. Okay. To say, you need, if you want to know the object, you have to enter into it. It's, it's the it's it's the Anselmian and Augustinian notion of believe in order to understand that uh-huh. that faith you have to enter into faith in order to actually understand what faith is. So, sorry, I got too nerdy there, but that's what's been going on with me. Welcome to Clerically Speaking. I'm Father Harrison. I'm Father Anthony. Father Harrison, I want I want to talk about a few things that that brought a smile to my face in the last okay. few weeks. Okay. All right, first of all. Uh, I, I think I mentioned that there are several 7 a.m. masses, I have to say, during the week. Yes. And not a lot can bring a smile to my face that early in the morning. Now, when I start mass, I love it. It's wonderful. I see all these people there. Beautiful. But I'm in the sacristy getting ready for mass. Not a lot of smiles. But one thing that did bring a smile to my face is that at this parish, they, we do get some altar servers mm-hmm. uh, during the summer at the <laughs> 7 a.m. mass. Hmm. And there's this one altar server, Damien. Uh, cool dude. He walks into the sacristy one day and he said, hey, I liked your podcast. And I was like, huh, hmm. how nice. Thank you, Damien. So Damien, if you listen to, listening to this, thank you for serving. Thanks for complimenting the podcast. Uh, 
Also, uh, a few weeks ago, I signed up for a subscription to Communio. Right? Yes. Because I was like, you yes. know what? It's time for me to do some more theological reading. Finally. This seems like a good place to start. Sucking him in. Just sucking yeah. him in. And so the community people wrote uh, a little letter just saying, thanks for subscribing, blah, 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 blah. And at the end, the postscript, they said, hey, thanks for talking about us on Clerically Speaking. <laughs> I was like, what? Because <laughs> I didn't like write, you know, Father Anthony from Clerically Speaking. I just signed up on their website using my yeah. first and last name. Yeah. Uh, so that was super cool. I was I was giddy about that. So uh, I that got was neat. especially giddy there too. I was like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, we've been... Uh, uh, remiss in, in doing this. We've been getting all sorts of delightful books from Word on Fire, and uh, yeah. they've been very kind to us. Um, just most recently, I received uh, The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis, uh, yeah. and also uh, a commentary on that uh, by Michael Ward, all from uh, our friends at Word on Fire. Uh, and all kinds of books. They have a compilation and, of Vatican uh, II stuff. A Ratzinger uh, reader. A Ratzinger and, reader, which yeah. I have perused. Uh, and so they're doing a lot of good stuff over there. Uh, yeah. So thanks for that. And then finally, uh, Producer Nick was on the Bourbon Trail. Mm-hmm. Now, first of all, shout out to Riley, uh, Producer Riley, <laughs> because she is pregnant and she enjoys whiskey as much as the next person, but she was still willing to go on the Bourbon Trail uh, for the sake of her husband. And if that isn't an act of sacrificial love, I don't know what it is. And it was for his 30th birthday, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. So big celebration, and she was there to support him. And so God bless her. Uh, and also happy birthday, producer Nick, and the forgotten Sharapa, uh, Matthew. Anyway, uh, while he was there, he met a, another Clerically Speaking listener who uh, just talked about how much the podcast has meant to him. Uh, I won't use the last name, but Alan. And also gave us some fancy whiskeys, which is delightful. <laughs> so it's always just funny because this is very much a kind of side gig thing that we do. I'm like, I enjoy doing it. Yeah. But like then you every once in a while realize that you are impacting people. And that's nice. It's nice that Jesus works through this weird podcast. And I'm grateful for that. It really is. And, and so... Because, uh, yeah, Nick and Riley phoned me yeah. on Sunday on their way back to tell me about this. Because, yeah, what happened is Nick posted something on Twitter about being on the bourbon trail. And Alan's like, hey, like, no, no, I'll show you. I'll show you this stuff. Right. But then, yeah. like, Alan shared his kind of conversion story like, about how I think and if I'm, and Alan can correct me if I'm getting it wrong. He's going to be very happy. I'm sure his daughter, I think, was listening to this when she was in Spain and when she came home. She said, Dad, you need to listen to this podcast. And essentially, by listening to it, yeah, essentially, from what Nick told me, um, came into the church, which is kind of like, man, God is good. Insane. I was, when Nick was telling me the story, I just was saying, what? What? Yeah. What? (laughs) So now we have to arrange to get my bottle of bourbon to me because it's very hard to ship bourbon to canada we have this mm-hmm. old law apparently it's actually it's just it's a hangover from prohibition that you can't ship alcohol within canada oh, it's really like posts and stuff like that so uh, it's very hard to get it here um but like maybe one of the times i'm in the states or hopefully i can get to pittsburgh for a few days in the fall we can we can get it then but also you know ultimately we have to you know we, we don't often do this but we should throw a little shout out then to alan's he, alan himself has a little uh podcast called uh cultural debris Oh, interesting. And so, you know, go check it out. I'll be going on there in the fall as well to talk about my book that's coming out then. So, yeah. Alan, thank and you so much, man. Like, And thank you for showing them the like hospitality. Yeah. That, that good old Southern hospitality. Beautiful. 
And then my final thing is, uh, so you did an interview with Larry Chap, uh, and I am lining up an interview with this couple I met over uh, playing Destiny 2, that video game I've been playing. Yeah. And they have a fascinating uh, conversion story to cool. Catholicism. Nice. So I'm going to interview them in the next few weeks. Very Excellent. excited for that. Excellent. Um, yeah. So nice. look forward to that. One more thing, just about that conversation I had with Riley and Nick as they were coming home. Okay. Because I was just yeah. asking you know how they're doing you know how's pregnancy going for riley i kind of praised her as well I'm like man that is quite uh, generous of you to go on this knowing you can't drink anything and uh and they said i was just asking like how long are you gonna be taking off after after that because in canada maternity leave is very different than it is in the states you can get up to a year and a half paid maternity leave in canada um which is kind of awesome yeah. um and so you know she was saying you know as a realtor you can kind of make your own schedule essentially so right. i said but here's the thing though i said you know you, you need to use your child to sell houses you need to use her to sell houses use her cuteness and adorableness you bring her to the to the to the open houses and people are going to see the baby and they're not going to make offers they're going to make more generous offers just because they saw your baby and besides this is america yeah and you have to earn your own way absolutely so that baby has to pull her own weight around the house by earning that living she has to pull herself up by her she own has to pull herself up by her booties that's what exactly. she has to do exactly <laughs> by her own booties you know that's america man that's america that's what you do in america everyone has to work everyone. i'm sure i'm sure riley's gonna really instill that protestant worth work ethic into her child i'm sure that's a priority of both nick and riley so good advice father harrison there we go but you know speaking of work we're gonna actually give nick a bit less work we're gonna go straight into presbyteral exhortations and now it is time for presbyteral exhortations. Oh yes. yes, quite good, quite good. Indubitably. Mm -hmm. I bet they can't wait to learn. They're gonna learn so much. It's my favorite part. It's the best part. Yes, yes, quite. Yes. So uh, we're doing this for a couple of reasons. One is I have to keep it to an hour, and I want to make sure we have enough time to keep this conversation. On, on step there. It's also, I think it's going to be an important one. And I just want to give sure we had enough time to have it. Um, and just as a little forewarning, this is a sensitive topic, I, I think is a good way to put it. Um, so, you know, if it's going to touch on things around human sexuality, it's going to touch on things around the crisis in the church in the last 20 years around sex abuse. So if that's something that's going to be hard for you to listen or you got little ones around, you don't want them to hear that, this might be a good time to turn it off. Yeah, I was just, if, if you like listen with your family, just uh, listen by yourself first and you can decide whether or not. Uh, that's right. Yeah, so that that's the warning. So, all right. And I want, so I, um, I want to talk about the situation that happened a few weeks ago in the States. Um, as has been reported by the pillar, um, Monsignor Burrell was stepped down from his post as General Secretary for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops due to finding out that he was um, a daily user of an app known as Grinder, which is a hookup act app in the homosexual community, but has also been shown to have big issues around um, pedophilia and stuff like that, that, that unintentional often unintentional at least uh, hookups can happen with underage people who present themselves as 18 mm -hmm. and the reason it was a story was simply because he was in charge of the sex abuse file for the conference 
And this app is widely known to have problems. And so this was kind of brought to the fore. I don't want to, we're not, we're not here to talk about how the reporting happened and everything. Um, I think it's safe to say that we both believe this is an important thing to happen in the life of the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to talk honestly about these stories, but it, it really, I remember when the story first hit and it really shook me in ways deeper than McCarrick. Oh yeah? Because the McCarrick stuff, everyone had always heard the rumors. It wasn't quite a shock when it finally came to the fore. Yeah. Um, well, for a lot of people. For a lot of people at least, right? If you're involved yeah. in... Yeah, yeah, if you're you're involved in life for, the for church, some people it certainly was, but for a yeah, lot of yeah. people it wasn't. Yeah. yeah, I think if you're yeah, but this one hit me deeper. I think, and I think it hits on two fronts. And I think this is why it's created such a a really actually probably an important discussion in one sense, which is the internet actually isn't private. <laughs> no, and it's I not. I think we've deluded ourselves to think it is. Yeah, um, and I think that's actually terrifying. <laughs> for everyone sure and it should be and i think that's part of it you're just like oh my gosh is everything i've ever done on the internet out there for everyone to ever see and you're just like yeah probably and i think anybody who's ever ever been online would would ask those questions right Mm -hmm. um but i think the reason it hit me deeper was it's it was a sign to me that we really actually haven't learned anything as a church we haven't actually started to even think or ponder about reform. We haven't addressed the underlying issues that surround all this stuff. And so it left me with, with a bit of a sense of dread. Not hopelessness, but just dread of, we ain't, we ain't got nothing yet. We ain't gotten anywhere yet. And, and, and for me, that's been the bigger question and issue that, and that's kind of where I want to take the direction today uh, about that question, because it's obviously going to impact how we talk about clerical life in general. But I think, I actually think this issue is actually broader than just clerical life. I actually think this is something that lay people as well have a kind of burden to bear in one sense. And I'll kind of get to that a bit later. Um, before I make further, any thoughts or comments about, yeah, from you about yeah, this? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we're just going to talk. I mean, things have been revealed. It wasn't just with uh, that priest. It was with um, stuff in the Vatican and um, in Diocese of, correct me if I'm wrong, was it Newark? Yeah. Yeah, where just a lot of these apps apparently being used in rectories and such. Uh, I will say that while we're not going to talk about the ethics or anything about how um, the information was uh, found or reported, we're just, we're just not going to talk about that right now. Uh, I, I will say uh, that, I mean, I think I speak for Father Harrison as well, that we are both uh, good friends of Ed and JD. Um, I think it's fair to say we both support their work. And even if you have uh, qualms or even disagreements about uh, the way they went about their reporting, I would hope that you would pray for them um, and understand their absolute, uh, at the very least, good intentions uh, for the church, that these are faithful men of the church that they take no pleasure in reporting uh, scandals in the church, but they feel like it's an important thing to do to bring about reform. I, I agree with them on that. Uh, but even if you disagree with the ways they do things, uh, pray for them, because as you can imagine, uh, 
with all this blowing up, it's it's a strain. It's a strain on their you know relationships and everything. Yeah. Uh, so please pray for them. And uh, and if <laughs> uh, they're listening, Ed JD, we love you. Okay. So I want to yeah. make sure I said that. But uh, yeah. So the church has put in a lot of institutional reforms. I think around the um, area of abuse. Um, so like, you know, I had to redo my virtues training. It's, it's also as far as there have been some cultural changes, I think, at least among the younger clergy in which we are constantly aware of the dangers of sexual abuse. It was just kind of always, uh, present in our formation. Um, everything, at least for me from like making sure that you have healthy boundaries and you never uh, meet with somebody in a room with no windows. It's something that we even talked about in our staff meeting the other day at my parish. Uh, when, when any of the staff meets with people, where's the safest place to do it? Are there you know, cameras uh, in or outside the room? Is it an open place? Like This is just stuff that we talk about and deal with all the time. Uh, it's also, on the, another level, it's, it's something that is a cross for a lot of us. Um, you know, if I want to go out and hang out with one of my friends, uh, you know, in a public place, and there's only two of us, uh, whether that's a, a man or a woman, that's something that's on my mind. How is this going to be perceived? And I think we can talk about whether or not that's healthy. <laughs> but, I mean, that's just, uh, you know, part of being a priest. This is a cross that we have to bear. But, yeah, I do agree that I think there there needs to be more reform. I'm not quite sure how we get there. This is a deeper cultural thing in clerical life. And the thing is, the problem with it is that it's not very different than what happens in secular life. Um, Like, you know, you and I hear confessions all the time. Uh, These are sins that everybody in the church, uh, well, I won't say everybody, but is very common among human beings, right? But it does strike us as different, and I think it should strike us as different when priests fall into these sins, because you know we've made this public promise, uh, in some cases a vow, of uh, celibacy. So it's different, and what the priest represents and is is different. At the same time, we are as human as anyone else. Mm-hmm. So how do you? balance those things? How do you look at those things with both mercy and accountability? Mm-hmm. So those are my initial thoughts. Right. And I think actually one thing you said is one area I want to kind of go with it. You're right. I think some things culturally have changed over the last 20 years. I think you're right. I think especially younger clergy are uh, a bit more on pins and needles about some of this stuff in many ways. And it's not, I think in some ways it's actually been a good thing. I think um, we've been blessed to, to be told and formed, at least I think intentionally in seminaries about how to have healthy human relationships. Um, although talking about seminaries is something I do want to talk about here in a moment, but um, yeah. um, you know, or at least there's been a, there's been a striving to form this. Um, but I think part of the issue, so I still remember when it all went down, like the USCCB released a statement that he is stepping aside to not distract from the work of the USCCB or something like that. I found that disappointing. 
And it kind of ties into something I think I talked about last month when I talked about how the church is ordered in in her sacramental nature. So I'm not saying, like, bureaucracy has a place in the life of the church um, because she's a human, she has that human institutional side. You need order. You need structure. So that's, you're always going to have a bureaucratic side to the church. Like, I would actually even argue, and I'm not 100% sure, but I think a large part of our modern notions of bureaucracy actually probably flow from engagements and influences from the the ecclesial uh, uh, sector first, but they've been kind of twisted, manipulated, and changed uh, to be more secular now in form. But well, yeah, even I think in the Roman Church, we we got a lot of our bureaucracy from Rome, right? Uh, exactly. Quite literally. So this this goes back a long ways, I yes, think. Yes, Justinian and the Roman laws and all that jazz. So, um, but you see, I, I thought about this and I thought, man, I think, man, wouldn't the story have been a lot different if Monsignor Burel had said, "Yeah, I did this and it was wrong," and, um. I should have done X, Y, and Z. Um, I still love Christ in his church, but for the good of the church, I'm going to go to, I need some time to pray and reflect before I decide my future, but maybe I'm going to go to a monastery for a couple of years, not exercise my priesthood or whatever, and just pray and reflect on my life. And repent. And repent. And so this gets to one of the problems there's still this kind of attitude of saving face in the institution. And I find that literally insane. <laughs> if you take that kind of AA motto of what's insane, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. What good has it done us <laughs> as a church that, that more bureaucratic administrative tone of response to things? Yeah, I think two things. One, we don't know, because, I mean, who knows? Uh, this is just stuff we don't know. We don't know if if uh, Monsignor wanted to make a statement and his bishop told him not to, or right. We, right. who knows the There's circumstances, a, yeah, right. right? Right, so you just, you just don't know. Uh, but also this thing with saving face, I when I think about, it, like, how much, like, the church's face to the world right now, how much face is there left to save? Yeah, you know? exactly. Uh, it's, it's a kind of a sad situation that, like, what are we, what are we trying to do? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. so there's that. Um, and I think, um, but I, for me, I think at the heart of it, the reason this kind of, so this whole notion of, of, yeah, it hit home in many deep ways. Um, but that we haven't changed anything. And I think it, I think the problem still is that there is a kind of how I'll put this. There's still a lack of acknowledgement that in fact we are all sinners. Hmm. So I think this situation reveals a lot of our current ecclesial state. That it um, rec- that it has certain that it that I think there are bigger underlying problems that in fact probably most of us are guilty of whether directly or indirectly um, that has fostered a situation where these things become possible now listen uh, there has to be uh, 
we also have to recognize like since the beginning of the church this has always been a problem not not in terms right. of, of abuse of minors i guess per se although that has happened in her history as well uh, but just saying um priests not keeping the promise of celibacy right right um, breaking chastity yeah, yeah breaking chastity so um it, well and there's a few reasons for this i think i think one of the reasons priests are afraid to be um, honest on these questions sometimes is even in the law of the church the requirement of perfect continence is that right is that the right word uh, yeah i think that yeah. word works yeah is that right I, I always forget but perfect and perpetual oh, man i want to actually make sure i'm using the right word here anyways there's a law in the church that essentially says like it's expected of this and, and it's something every priest obviously strives for right yeah. but then let's say something like a priest has a fall once with another person right they've broken not only their promise but they've also broken the law which brings with it certain penalties i don't i, I guess i'm wondering question wise and and this is something for canon lawyers to address not me is 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 that a, is that going to create is that law going to create a place of honesty and accountability in the clerical life um now the, obviously some priests probably know it exists and just don't care um that's going to happen some priests do care and they actually strive for this um a lot of priests I know lived this out quite well, et cetera. Like, like there's all, there's a whole spectrum here. And I think that's, so I think that's part of the, th the question too, is, is where does, where does the line stop on the spectrum of all this? That's one question, but it gets to a bigger thing. And so this is my theory. I'm going to cut, as you guys know, I process things by talking and father Anthony will gently and, and, and pastorally correct me and bring me down to everyone's <laughs> level. If I get too heady or if I, uh, go off the wrong direction. I have a hard time believing that a priest of 30 years has done this from the beginning. That um, it's possible, but how can you hear confessions, say mass like this, like, and not allow it to get to your conscience that I, I guess I wonder was this something that started off as a here and there thing that exacerbated over time we'll never know and I don't and I think in that regards it's not for us to know per se but but I mean yeah. just in general like uh, talking about habits of sin yeah so even taking an individual out of it how does that manifest in the life of a priest when you're in constant right. uh interaction uh such a deep closeness with uh the sacraments and with exactly the, right with people. And, mm -hmm. and you know like if you're gonna take your priesthood seriously you're gonna know um wait i gotta get that right like i think i've been honest about this before i said like there have been times where i've missed my breviary um actually but that kind of gets to your conscience eventually <laughs> to say Listen, you have a you have two paths to choose, right? And it's not like I was missing it all day, every day for a long time or anything like that. It's just more like, you know, you miss the morning prayer here, evening prayer there, night prayer there, office here, office there. But it kind of actually what, what kind of got to me was like, listen, is that the direction you really want to go in life? I'm like, no, I see the slippery slope. And I know the promises I've made. And I have to keep these promises. Um, I mean, again, like even the law of the church allows for sometimes like if out of pastoral necessity, you need to do things, that's fine. But uh, sometimes it was honestly out of laziness. 
right? Um, so anyways, I think there are multiple factors that have created a clerical culture that isn't healthy in any way, shape or form today. So at the root of it, though it's interconnected with so many, is in North America, a strong workaholism in priests. If you're the general secretary of the USCCB, you are someone who's got to work hard and often probably not get days off or a day of rest or whatever. Who has to, you know, is this, was this a, a, a case of, of, of climbing the clerical ladder? I have no clue. Um, maybe, maybe not. Who knows? But, you know, you're a priest who's known to work hard. And the priest that works hard is a good priest. Um, but also, we are priests in a, in a clerical situation or an ecclesial situation these days where the demands far outweigh our ability to give. And so we want to say yes to everything because we've got good pastoral hearts. And I, I really, again, I believe 99% of priests, that's the case. I, I really, truly believe this. Regardless of where they stand theologically, we're like 99% of priests are priests because they want to be a good priest. And a good priest wants to address everyone's needs, wants to be there for people when they need them. But when you lack priests... The demand doesn't go away. And so it creates a second, um, a second area where workaholism gets in, where it, it attacks that good intention of the pastoral heart that wants to say yes to people in their needs. But it gets to a point where all he does is work. And why, so before I get to that next bit, there's another little connection thing here. But then why? Are there so few priests to address those needs? We have less. Well, and this is where it's not just a clerical problem. And this is, I think I want to get to the heart of this is folks, we've all sinned and we've all been the beneficiaries of quote unquote, the structures of sin. And it's time for us to repent. Um, because why are there less priests? Contraceptive mentalities abortion, luxurious lifestyles. Um, um, now, again, I, I got to be, I, I want people to be, understand here, though, too. Like, I'm not trying to say go out and have 20 kids or that you can't have holidays and stuff like this. But we haven't given our sons to the church. <laughs> but we still want the church to serve us. And again, like this, I don't think this is, I'm not what I'm, I'm trying to summarize here. Cause I don't want to, this is not about finger blaming. Cause again, this is, I'm pointing the finger at all of us. <laughs> right. Right. And also, okay. Let me jump in a little okay, bit. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I'll start with your first point and then I'll try to go. Uh, okay. 
back to your other first point. Your last yeah. anyway. So <laughs> they're like three. They're like three. They're right. They're like three points that are kind of intermingled with each other. Yeah. So first of all, the workaholic priest does not inspire vocations. No. Um, people can tell when a priest is burnt out. People can tell when a priest is just saying the words for the mass. People can tell, even though the priest may have a smile on his face, whether or not it's real. That's something that people have an intuition for, whether or not they realize it consciously or not. Uh, the priest, by his way of living, by the way he celebrates sacraments, by the way he interacts with the community, uh, either inspires or does the opposite towards vocations. Okay, mm -hmm. so there's some of that. Um, go, uh, going back to uh, the beginning of what you said, you said, I don't think it's likely or possible that somebody who is like 30, 30 years into their priesthood, they started out with these proclivities. And my thought is yes and no to mm -hmm. that. Uh, because very often, I mean, the, you don't start off, you know, <laughs> you don't hit puberty and then immediately download a hookup app, you know. Right. Uh, right. It often starts a lot slower than that. Now, there, of course, there are cases of um, abuse, other external factors uh, that may throw you into that uh, addiction very quickly uh, and in a very intense way. And that's, you know, tragic. Uh, but I think there's... Because also your time in seminary can be very uh, important to how you are formed. Uh, I can speak better for my generation than other ones because I am in my generation. And you know, as, a, as a millennial who basically grew up with the internet uh, and surrounded by other guys who grew up with the internet, this was a big struggle for most guys in seminary. Uh, you know, a chastity in that, in that sense. And what was most healthy and most important to uh, for the healing in that was not just spiritual direction, was not just uh, you know uh, therapy, which was helpful. Yeah, but the fact that at least in my seminary we were able to form small groups and kind of talk openly and honestly about this stuff. Of course, not getting into like details or anything weird, but just the fact like yeah, we are struggling and we do struggle with this, and bringing that out into the light in a healthy way. Um, to pull yourself out of that loneliness and out of that darkness. Because the thing with sexual sins, I think, um, the acts themselves are sinful and bad. But oftentimes, I think what is most detrimental to the soul are the after effects of it. Um, that feeling of, I, I'm not worthy anymore, or I should not pray anymore, or I am alone, or I am a hypocrite. Um, the fact that the enemy not only tempts us into the sin, but after the sin uses it as a battering ram against our hearts. And if you stay in the darkness with that, you eventually can be so worn down that while you hate your own hypocrisy, you grow comfortable with it. Um, you feel trapped in it. Uh, I think we also have to, it's another, this is another personal opinion that it's, I think we have to be careful around the idea or using the word addiction, because I think sometimes that word implies a hopelessness. Um, sometimes, right? Uh, doesn't necessarily, but I think sometimes it does for people uh, that, oh, this is an addiction. This is a habit that's formed so much that there's hopelessness. And that is that is not the case. It is the case that we will always struggle with uh, chastity because you know, we're human humans and sinfulness is a real thing. And this is a tough balance to strike, uh, but there has to be a kind of, while sin is always unacceptable, we have to normalize struggle with sin 
if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Right. So I'm not saying like you come, this yeah. is why it's so difficult because you never <laughs> yeah. become comfortable with sin. Right. Yeah. It's um, not, you're not trying to make an excuse for license or anything like that. No, but coming from a place of humility about this, because for so often, and it's weird because especially with the struggles against chastity, uh, it's more so than I think other sins that if I just try hard enough with my own powers by myself, I can do this thing. Yeah. And because the sin is so shameful, especially in our culture, uh, it makes you want to try to fight this alone. Mm-hmm. And that's not something that works. Right. Uh, and, and on the other side, we should not be running around telling everybody about our struggles with chastity. This should be, you know, a small group, trusted people, uh, very close spiritual friends or spiritual yeah. director, that kind of thing, right? Yeah. You don't want to be running around. And that's that's one of the other things that makes this so uh, difficult, that if a priest does not have good friends where he can be honest with, and, and yeah. that takes work to, yeah. to form those relationships. Oh, yeah. my computer. Uh-oh. We just lost Father Anthony. Okay. My computer ran out of power, but it looks like... Uh, for in case there was problems with editing, uh, I forgot to plug in my computer and it shut off. <laughs> I believe I was talking about the problems of uh, I, I was yeah. about to get to loneliness in the priesthood. Yeah, uh, that uh, so you become comfortable, even though you hate it and it wears down your soul. This kind of hypocrisy, and if you don't, if you haven't formed relationships, especially in the priesthood, uh, where you talk about this openly and honestly, you just kind of go further and further into that uh, dark mm-hmm. place, and also. It's one thing to be able to get together with priests, to hang out, to to mm-hmm. vent, to have a few drinks. That's really good, really healthy, and really important. But to form the relationships where you can talk deeply about these things, that takes a lot of intentionality and a lot of work. Because mm-hmm. another thing I've noticed, and it depends on, I guess, the diocese, but the thing I've noticed in, in priestly culture is that because we are so used to not being vulnerable with anyone, it's particularly difficult to be vulnerable with other priests. Right. Because... And, and it's also, yeah. we just, we, we have to, how do I want to put this? Um, we're required really to keep so many things to the heart because of things like confession, counseling right. and stuff. You get really good at not sharing anything. <laughs> yeah. And when you're the person that always has to keep things together, whether it be a funeral or a wedding or, you know, confessions, like, like you mentioned, it can be hard to turn that off so that you can receive healing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's just a thing that we have to consciously uh, work on. Mm -hmm. But getting back to the fact that like, you know, how does this, how does this happen? That this living this kind of double life uh, as we continue to live it and villainize ourselves and isolate ourselves, uh, it becomes easier and easier to fall into these things your heart becomes so numbed that you actually don't think twice about living your double life so on one hand you may be actually doing a lot of good things for people uh, Mm -hmm. through your ministry on the other hand you are uh, not even struggling with these sins they're just Mm -hmm. happening Mm -hmm. another thing I want to bring up before I throw it back to you is that uh, the question of where does mercy fall into this Mm -hmm. because there are priests who have uh, fallen, who have had a sexual encounter with a, another adult, um, and mm-hmm. they were both willing, as far as that you know goes, and who have repented of it, uh, mm-hmm. genuinely and sincerely. 
should they never be allowed to be a priest again? Right. Uh, and these are just, I mean, sometimes, you know, these priests, uh, they didn't have that, those opportunities in seminary. They were mm-hmm. not formed in that way. They didn't have those mm-hmm. relationships. And while if you look on the outside, you could see this fall coming for them, it was, it almost came as a surprise. I didn't even mm-hmm. know that I was capable of doing that until it happened. And then what do you do now? Uh, and it's difficult because when there's an encounter with another person, uh, it's never going to be secret. So for mm-hmm. these priests who have fallen once and genuinely repented and are genuinely good priests, there's this sort of Damocles always hanging above their head where their priesthood be taken away from them at, at, at any moment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's why we should, you know, I mean, because I know nothing about Monsignor uh, mm-hmm. Burrow, but that's why we also have to pray for him uh, because mm-hmm. after all this has happened, yeah, you know the, the torment of a soul in that situation uh, is is something that we should uh, you know pray for. Yeah. Uh, so there you go. There was there was my part of the rant. All right. Yeah, and I think you brought up a bunch of things that I think are really important that I want to kind of bring around to. So, go. yeah. So what happens is we have all these demands on priests today. And, and th- those demands aren't decreasing, they're only increasing. And part of this is too, because of the abuse stuff, there's a lot more things, especially when you're a pastor, you have to manage in a parish to create a safe place for everyone. Um, so it's just l- like a priest 60 years ago did not have to worry about all the financial, structural, policy stuff that we have to worry about today, which creates an added load that nobody's trained for, by the way, right? We're just not trained for it. You're just kind of... Ho- hopefully you're going to turn out to be competent enough to do it. Right. And, and listen, like seminary can't prepare you for everything. It's, it's, there's, it's about just getting you to like a healthy launching pad for priesthood, essentially. Yeah. It's, impo- it's literally impossible for seminary to prepare you for everything. And it shouldn't just like marriage prep definitely does not prepare you for everything in marriage. Right. Yeah. Even your wedding day doesn't prepare you for everything in marriage. Um, so we got to be careful about, about that. But um, I think your thing about mercy is really important. But it's also like it's like a mutual mercy to all of to each other, but that's only possible when we can all kind of get back to what I was saying earlier. We all recognize like actually we've all somehow, either intentionally or not, by virtue of our actions, our participation in the culture we live in, have participated to a life in the church where priesthood's not attractive, where being a Catholic is not attractive, and so people leave. Um creating more demands, less vocations, and a workaholism, right? So, and, and a workaholism sometimes because they just think it's good to work or other times they just want to provide. It's a temptation I'm always dealing with. I'm like, I want to say yes to everyone, but I'm learning more and more. It, I mean, apart from those two reasons, it, you know, being con- constantly working can be a defense mechanism against dealing with your own feelings. Right. You, you can constantly distract yourself with doing good works that you never take that time to enter into yourself. Right. And you need to like, I, for me, the heart is such a, a central place. And it's uh, it's interesting for me in my pastoral work, how I, I notice how much it's lacking in the formation of a lot of young people, especially. Uh, they've just never been formed to be, to have that integration of mind and heart that mm. is, I think is essential to being a, a, a like a, a Catholic, period. Um, so... Um, because what happens is when a priest says yes to everything and he justifies it, you know, this is a good pastoral thing to do, blah, blah, blah. Uh, what happens is the first thing that often disappears is his prayer life. 
Yeah. And that's the place of his intimacy with Jesus, which is everyone needs intimacy, right? This is like, it's ingrained in us. So if you lose that life of prayer, you lose that intimacy. Well, it's going to naturally go start seeking somewhere else, either through a workaholism, maybe so that you don't have that, you know, that if you don't work too hard, things are going to get really bad elsewhere, or it's just going to start seeking itself elsewhere. And I, so that that's one place of reform that I think just needs to happen, which is just basic. Like, are we willing to suffer the lack of pastoral activity sometimes so that our priest can have a life of prayer? Because remember, this prayer is not just for him. It's always like we pray the bravery for the whole church. We're praying for you every day because we know you can't sacrifice the time that we can right like i know most people cannot do a holy hour every day and i wouldn't expect it of them right um that's why we do these things for you for the people um sorry i just had the bane thing go in my head there <laughs> for, <laughs> the for you the people <laughs> oh, yes. um sorry but um that's part of the priesthood is that it exists to pray not to work at well i mean to work too but to work and pray it needs that um but it means sometimes the priest has to say no to things, not because he doesn't want to do it, but he's only one man. And you have to start, like that's something I've been really realizing these last few weeks. I'm like, I have to accept that I am only one man and I can only do X amount of things. Which means like your priest cannot change everything he wants to change in the parish right away. Even though it might be a good thing. Are, you, are we willing to suffer that for a bit so that he can do things? Are we willing to support that, right? I, and that's like that's just coming from that I would call it that cultural sin that we're always going to exist in right those quote unquote structures of sin that we're listen we're always going to exist in a world where unfortunately computers are manufactured through slavery in China that supports their one child policy and all this stuff we're always going to exist in that world we cannot avoid it but we always have to be in that place of constant repentance that we recognize this it's it's a weird it's a weird balance and tension to hold, um, but it's the healthy one. <laughs> it's really the healthy one. And I mean that not in terms of like personal sin. I'm talking about like, just we live in a world where, yeah, do you what? The, the fruit you had yesterday was probably picked by an underpaid immigrant worker who can, barely, who can barely put food on their table. You can't do anything to control that, unfortunately, sometimes. sometimes. Some people aren't a place to do that. A lot of us aren't. We just buy the fruit. Right? This is something I think actually the good place brings out quite well, like the, the social consequences of sin. It actually brings it out very well in the third season. Um, but like that we've all benefited. Listen, we've benefited. The reason we live in quite a, quote unquote, a very prosperous North America is because we've benefited from the effects of abortion and, and all these other things that create more free time for people to pursue things unnecessarily, right? Or not unnecessarily, but that gives them to pursue advances in technology and stuff like this and, 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 and so on and so forth. But the other thing I want to kind of get at quickly, if I can, is, is you know, you, you talked about the loneliness thing, because I think that's what happens is, and it's been weird for me. I actually really feared loneliness when I entered seminary. I actually experienced, it's weird. I actually experienced a lot in seminary, weirdly enough. Um, for some reason, God gave me a grace. I have not experienced, I don't think I've experienced a single day of loneliness. I've experienced isolation. But they're not the same thing, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I don't know why, but what loneliness is a big thing 
and you can't share your heart if you're alone. And I think part of that becomes so what happens is we, because again, we have so few priests, they live on their own. Um, and we give them more and more duties. And so they're not, they're used to having to just kind of tough it out on their own. And I don't think that's good. In fact, like the law of the church kind of implies that you're living in community where you share your heart with each other and you work with each other, like you were saying about earlier. I think part of this too, it's like, it just also gets to like a Puritan culture thing. Like even the way it's still kind of, all this stuff is kind of presented in popular culture. The things around sexual deeds is always talked about in a quote unquote dirty fashion, right? Like it's always seen as dirty or disgusting and everything like that. And it's like, man, that's Puritanism, <laughs> like through and through. Yeah, and this is the thing that's we all we so often see um, sexual sin as the worst kind of sin. Uh, but if you look at like the 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 deadly sins, it's not. As right. far as like you know, we look at like Dante's Inferno, um, like the worst sin is a betrayal of a friend. Uh, this is something that uh, involves your intellect far more, the higher right. capacities of the human being. Whereas, uh, you know, sexual sin deals with more of your, you know, fallen human nature. Uh, right. It's, it's, um, <laughs> it, uh, a priest told me this one time. I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to put it in a way that less bluntly than uh, he did. But it was a way to uh, kind of shock people back to reality a little bit. And this is in no way to underplay the fact that sexual sin is a sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's like, okay, so imagine you, you've gotten to the pearly gates. And God looks at you and says, well, you know, you did all these things. You served God in this way and that way. You uh, stride for prayer. But, but you did touch yourself one too many times. So it's hell for you. It's mm-hmm. it, you put it in that sort of comical way to like realize that, and, and I think this is this is important. We cannot make our entire spiritual lives revolve around our sexual sin because this is what right. happens to far too many people. That their entire view of their own holiness is whether or not they've committed a sexual sin. Like if I've fallen, then I can't pray, I can't do anything, I'm worthless, I'm terrible, and if I have not done that then I'm okay. And so mm-hmm. they live from confession to confession. They live from sin to sin instead of living in God's grace, instead of mm-hmm. striving to see his face of love and mercy. Right. Uh, instead, we just keep looking at our own nothingness. And you can't right. do that without looking... Like, we should look at ourselves, but in the light of God's love and mercy. And also to realize that these things can be healed. I think it's that's very important. And that's why it's so difficult to talk about this sometimes, because you don't want to underplay it, but you mm-hmm. also kind of have do things, and sometimes humor helps, sometimes mm-hmm. uh, just honest conversations help to bring you out of that mental yeah. place. And I think like it's that's why I think paradoxical thinking is so vital in the life of the church because it, it can hold on to these tensions without it becoming one thing over and against the other. Um, and it helps to see things in the right uh, light. And, and so like, because I think this is the other thing and, and it's something I'm hoping that will happen in conversations and seminaries and stuff because we also have to remember who's in formation, who are the formators in seminaries, usually a generation older than you at the very least, sometimes two, maybe even three, yeah. right? Which is also like a good thing. You need yes. to learn from those who've gone ahead of you. Yes. The thing is though, they work and live in a seminary environment and um, 
but perhaps not as aware sometimes of what's going on on the ground sure as much as other people are i don't think seminary prepares men to go into an oversexualized world hmm. just don't think it does i don't and i don't think they know how to and i'm, I'm like i kind of like I, I get that but it's like we have to like because what happens is you get not not only are you sent out but you may maybe you're lucky and you get to be an assistant for a couple of years and then you're given a parish of your own and you're off and often in those first times you're often given parishes that are far away from everyone else so you can't build pristy community um which is you know and, and so on and so forth and it gets dangerous it gets really dangerous and so like we I, it gets down to me for, to, down to it for me is really like we all need to reform like and this is the thing it's like the church is always in need of reform because we are members of her and we are sinners who have fallen and need to reform as well um but it also means what are we willing if we acknowledge this truly what are we willing to give up in repentance for the sake of a better living in the paradox if you will a more healthier living in the paradox and i don't think those are the questions that are being asked and it was like for me that's that's where this is all coming down to it's like not just the priesthood but like how are we living with our parishioners and how are parishioners living with us how are families living because like here's the thing i don't think our isolation or our feelings of isolation are they're different experientially obviously yeah but i don't think they're that much different than the families who you know struggle to get to mass every sunday oh absolutely who, you know i think a lot of families feel this aloneness too because they're trying to live the catholic faith but maybe they're one of two or three families in the parish that are imagine right? not being able to talk to the closest person in your life about these kind of struggles right it happens all the time right all the time yeah, yeah. Uh, whether it's it's struggles with like within their own relationship and right. the, the difficulties in that or temptations from the outside uh it's it that it, i mean if anything that ingrains a deeper feeling of loneliness having someone yeah. so close and yet so far away yeah. uh, and something else i keep and, thinking about is that i have we forgotten what religion is like yeah. it, it's so it's it's so difficult because it it's, it's becomes but even for priests it's temptation that's become so secondary in our lives maybe it's an ever-present secondary but still secondary and i'm thinking about while my seminary in a lot of ways is very good at talking about um the uh like psychosexual health uh healthy intimacy the importance of exercise the importance of uh, having close friends, uh, all that was very good, very helpful, and not something that a lot of, you know, that was taught in previous generations. But what is even more essential is falling deeply and radically in love with Jesus Christ. Exactly. And so often, like, e even people who um, struggle with, I think sometimes there's a kind of still looking at the church or at God as a huge moral rule book or mm -hmm. it's, it's just it might be an ever-present secondary but it's mm -hmm. not the center yeah and so yeah I'm glad you brought that up because I think this is the heart of it and this is where the form needs to happen in so many ways and, and it kind of it, it's, it's so interesting to me how so many of our topics over these years because mm -hmm. we're actually more or less it won't we won't have an episode on the anniversary we're pretty much at our three-year anniversary right now too mm -hmm. actually interestingly enough um 
how they've all dovetailed with each other. Because we've had episodes about not just the tradening, but like the centrality of the person of Jesus. What is the church? What's faith? Um, modernism, but also like Catholic atheism was mm-hmm. one of my favorite earlier episodes. And it's, it's these all dovetail into all this because, and I was really struck, um, Larry Chap in our interview with him, uh, uh, brought this phrase from Ratzinger's Introduction to Christianity, which I'm reading right now for my studies. And, and I came across, I'm like, oh man, that's, that is such a great, hanging over the abyss of nothingness. <laughs> this is something that we're experiencing in a deeper way, not just in the church, but in the world, okay? You're hanging over the abyss of nothingness, um, <laughs> which is can sound quite nihilistic if you don't look at it through a Christological lens. And I'm not going to burden you all with that right now, but... Um, but that that's the place where Christ wants to meet us today. He comes, he enters into our nothingness as the place of communion with him. Um, that's the place of grace. That's the place of love because we have a, to get a little tiny metaphysical, we, we experience in the depth of our being a nothingness. I am not Anthony. You are not me. Mm-hmm. Um, there is something I am not. And that right we are created ex nihilo right literally yeah. out of nothing so there is always going to be this kind of nothingness hanging within the core of our experience and our being but that's actually the place where grace comes and says ah but i uphold you here and i love you here and this is the place i want to encounter is where you find your dignity etc but we haven't we're not willing to experience that honestly mm-hmm. because we're afraid because we've taken jesus out of the center and it's something I've really been appreciating from reading Giassani lately, because it's like there's three questions. Giassani has a trilogy. Um, um, religious sense, um, the or- at the origin of the Christian claim, and why the church. Are we made for a destiny? Is the first question of the first volume. Is Jesus the answer, and is he our destiny? And if he is our destiny, how do we access him today, and how do we know him today? Why does he institute a church? Those are the three most fundamental questions that we can ask today. And he puts them in such a clarity and light that it starts, like those are the questions we need to be acting out of. I'll share a quick story with this. Um, I'll try and keep the details general, but I I was talking to someone recently and they were talking about uh, experience um, once where someone asked, why are, why are, um, someone asked, you know, a question you often hear what happens to the people who are unbaptized, Mm. right? And they said, you know, I always struggled with, everyone just had to have a response right away. And what I do right then and there, I gave a response right away. I gave the theological answer. But actually it was a a weird Holy Spirit moment. He, I said, wait, no, I was wrong. I'm sorry. You're right. We're too quick to have an answer. And so we went, we entered this dialogue to the point where the question got reframed. I said, wait, if these are the three core questions, then the question isn't what happens to the unbaptized? Because if Christ is really the center, that's not really a concern to you. You know how Christ does and is and acts, and you don't really care about the technicalities. Your question is, why aren't people baptized? If this, right, if Christ is this way, why isn't why aren't they bad? Like that's that is a question that arises from a person who puts Christ at the center. And so when we ask these questions, it's a sign of a lack of integration of the right. faith of Christ as the center. And so 
we need to be better. This is like, this is why I get into the heart stuff. This is everything. We need to integrate this stuff by framing everything, including everything we've discussed today. And I'm really, that's why I'm glad you brought it up because that's really at the heart of it. If we're willing to put Christ at the center, because if we are, it means we're willing and able to trust through the sufferings that will endure by making sacrifices we need to make to make sure the church is at least a healthier place. That we have the trust to um, make decisions for those in leadership that aren't simply bureaucratic and aren't trying to save the face of, of the church, but come from a place of repentance and life because we see that when we do these things, Christ is there. All of a sudden, when Christ is the center, the light, the question changes. Mm-hmm. And that's where we need to focus. And that's for me, I think the thing, it's like, we haven't asked that question. Is Christ the answer to my destiny? Yeah, I think that's probably a good place to to wrap up. I do want to say this, and because it's it's tough conversation, it is. Um, but in a way, it's it's also very affirming. And I just want to say this is that I am so grateful for my priesthood. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we all know, and everyone knows all the problems the church faces right now, the difficulties, even in in, in pastoral life. Uh, but I have never one day regretted uh being a priest and my life is still so full of of joy uh and it definitely would not be if christ wasn't the center and he could definitely be more Uh, i don't want to like yeah right but it's it's in a weird way very affirming uh Mm -hmm. about this vocation that despite everything we've talked about despite our own personal struggles it's still overwhelmingly worth it to say yes to jesus christ uh, yeah, you know we we've we've shared you know uh, I've shared difficulties that I had in seminary and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. Still, utterly, completely, totally, without a doubt, worth it. Mm-hmm. I just felt like it's important to say that at the end of like this episode. Well, yeah, exactly. No, but we're asking these questions because we love the church. Yeah, <laughs> we wouldn't be asking these questions otherwise. But uh, um, and we love our priesthood, mm-hmm. and we know the humanity of our priesthood. Pretty well, mm-hmm. I think. I'm really grateful that I have a priest like you who I could talk to, and I have other priests who I can talk to where we can share our heart with each other. And, I th- and I'm really also grateful for our listeners to let us process this. So, you know, like we're thinking about this. We don't have all the answers. Okay, guess also what? that. Yeah. Nobody does. <laughs> Nobody does. You can, you can do a zillion institutional reforms, but until we acknowledge the central questions of our destiny, are we created for a destiny? Is Jesus the center of that? And is the church the place of that? Only then can those reforms start to bear light, but they will never be perfect. They'll never, we also, this is, I mean, it's not to say that you want to allow these things to happen, but we also have to accept they'll never be perfect because the church is full of fallen people. And so she has always been this way in that sense too. She is holy and sinful at the same time, but we always want to strive to move away from sin so that the church can become more credible by living more intentionally, I don't want to use the word intentionally, um, but it's by living more fervently a love for Jesus Christ through his church. When people see that love and the radical dependence that is not just showing up to Sunday mass, but that a family serves the poor, looks after a needy family or whatever. And we know, you and I know so many people who do this in, in the secret of their hearts and lives, but it needs to be something more than just showing up to mass on Sunday and saying your prayers at night. It's a way of life. It's a full way of life that impacts everything we are where Christ wants to be the center. Yeah. And that's what I want to propose to people is let me be the center. And, and not to get pedantic, but it's not a way of life. It is life. 
And that's yeah. that's the mindset yeah. we need to make. Uh, he is the way, the, the truth, truth, and the, the life. life. The Paulines are gonna love that I said that right there because that's nice. way Jesus way true life is the is the center of their charism. Cool, cool. Thanks everyone for for bearing with us with that conversation and and um, you know and if you have critiques, just we ask out of charity because we were just trying to do this out of our heart. Um, and maybe we said some things here and there that maybe lack some nuance. Um, but just recognize we're trying to do this for the good of, of all of us who are listening here. Yeah. So, Which you is know, not to say you can't critique us. You can say right. no, no, exactly, stuff. exactly. Yeah, just yeah, saying, yeah. do it out of charity, right? <laughs> do it out of charity. Not that I'm not, you know, most people who listen to us, I think, know how we work. Yeah. But uh, thanks for listening. Uh, you can find us. Uh, you can email us at clericalspeaking uh, at gmail.com on Twitter at clericalpod. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, you can find the podcast anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Uh, tell your friends about the podcast and tell your enemies too, because Jesus says you must love your enemies. You can find me at Fr Harrison on Twitter. You can find me setting up my new room in the seminary. Not seminary. You can find me taking a nap because my brain Remedial is fried. Classes. Remedial classes. Remedial classes. <laughs> Please, no, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> you can find. We can find you in your new room in the rectory. Is what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. I'm setting up a new room in the rectory. <laughs> Excellent. And we will see you guys all in a couple weeks. So thanks for listening. Peace. Didn't say God bless. You didn't say God bless. It's, it was emptiness in my heart. <laughs>